Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 366. I really got nothing to say, but something tells me I'm going to say a lot anyway. My name is Caleb Hegg. And saying much less than Caleb, even though he doesn't have much to say, I'm Rob Van Hoff. You are not centered, my friends. Hang on just a Let me center you. Boom. There you go. Oh, I feel so much centered. Ah, centered. How you doing, buddy? Found my happy spot. So I was, I'm I was, battling. I'm battling a little bit of a the crud, a head cold. So I will try to remember to mute if I have to like blow my nose or something. So yeah. I started our mic. season nine intro music today. That was interesting to say the least. I'm looking forward to hearing what you what you get. So am I. I had to trash everything. So. Oh well. Um. So. Brandon in the chat room, he gets uh, the award for uh, most used emails in the in one week, and uh, that's probably going to be this week. Oh yeah, yeah, we got a lot. We got he's he's got some great great questions, great things to talk about. Um, Lord willing, and we will be. Uh, I'll be in a new office by the end of the year. We'll see, we'll see. Before season nine. No, probably not. But we'll. But once again, we'll just we'll just have to see. Never can tell. Um, yeah. Should we? I mean, is there really anything else to talk about, or should we just jump right in? Well, we should tell people this. Uh, the comment line. Give us a call two five three four six five thirty two zero five. You can also try to beat Brandon's record of most used uh, emails in one show. See uh, Resource dot com. It's C H E G G at Torresource dot com. Don't forget to go to TorahResource.com. Right now, you can find all sorts of good resources, including resources on the Festival of Hanukkah. A happy Hanukkah to you, Mr. Van Hoff. And to a happy you. Hanukkah to everyone in our chat Come room. Them. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's good. Um, yeah, there's actually readings for Hanukkah in a little booklet that you can print out for free. And... Uh, all sorts of stuff. Okay. Everybody keeps saying, <coughs> curious about the topic. Been praying for you, brother. Been praying for you a lot. Um, yeah. So curious about the topic. Well, what did I name this? <laughs> uh, unpopular laws of God. Okay. Basically, I didn't know how to rename something that we've talked about for the past three episodes. So I just named it that. Basically, uh, here's the here's the dilemma that we uh, are are in right now. Hang on, just like let me cough. Well, we keep getting really good emails from people asking about um, our view of the millennium and the temple, and uh, the question is is how do we respond to those? Uh, well, we keep trying to respond, but unfortunately, we're obviously not doing a good a good job because people keep asking really good questions that we haven't answered yet. So that's good. It means that our, our our listeners are keeping us on our toes. I want to start with this one. Patent Patrol. Patent? Pedant? P-E-D-A-N-T. What word is that? Pedant? Pedant? Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. Is that uh, a person's name? Yeah, that's what that's what they're... It, it's their YouTube handle. Anyway, okay, here's here's what we got. They say, can you explain why you say that the sin sacrifice might refer instead to a purification offering? Which passage are you talking about? Okay, let's stop real quick and let's center the uh, the conversation of what this person is talking about. 
when we talk about the millennium and when we talk about a future temple, um, there are a lot of different, and I, I really want to try to focus on this throughout this show in terms of maybe we can try to intermingle the notion that there will be another temple, which we believe, and the notion of our, um, our well, what we believe of, of the millennium. So I believe that Christ will come before the millennium reign. That's where, and I've, I've, I've explored that a little bit. That's what I think is pretty biblical. Now, I'm open for arguments to the contrary. And, uh, but so far I haven't heard any, any really solid ones. Okay, so um, with that said, now, when we read the prophetic books, and you can go to just about any of them, but if you read like the end of Ezekiel, uh, Zechariah or the end of uh, Ezekiel or the end of Isaiah or even the end of Jeremiah, what you're faced with is this notion that there is actually some kind of a temple. Now, throughout Christianity, there's been a lot of different, throughout Christian history, there's been a lot of different views on this. And uh, one of those views is that all of the um, the talk of a future temple within the prophets is actually allegorical. In other words, it's not literal. They're talking about allegory. Now, the problem with this is that, especially in Ezekiel, you have numerous chapters that talk about the length of this door and the length of this wall and all that kind of stuff. And no one that, that in my personal opinion, this is a personal opinion, in my personal opinion, no one has come up with a satisfactory answer that I have found, that I personally have found, uh, that would explain how this is allegorical. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense how this would be allegorical because the detail that's put in is, um, is much more than what would normally be given for any kind of allegory. Now I'm going to stop and ask, uh, Rob actually before. Okay. First of all, uh, thank you very much for the super chat. Love is bigger. Weights and measures. You've been blessed. Oh, Okay. With that out of the way, what is, <laughs> now I want to stop because I really want to hash all this out very well. What is, uh, so when we're talking about the notion of a future temple, let's just, and I know that you, you and I are not super well versed. In other words, I've in, in Ezekiel, I've never, I've never taught through Ezekiel. I haven't written on Ezekiel. I've read Ezekiel numerous times. Okay. And uh, you told me even before we came on, I'm not super well versed in Ezekiel. So it's, uh, this is not, I'm not trying to have like a authoritative stance on this but no i don't yeah exactly I don't, there's a lot i don't understand about ezekiel right and, and i'm okay i'm okay with that right. you know I, i'm okay not understanding i i feel like there's other things that the lord has my attention focused on and right. so and and you know yeah as far as long as i've been associated with whatever the messianic movement is which is well over 20 years now that's people come with what i call the gotcha verses you know well, right. what about the like some sort of verse that's like oh well that can't be this and it's it's definitely something people look at and try to solve or try to resolve and so i don't i don't claim to have any uh insight into how ezekiel you know should be read um, yeah. Okay. So I, I'm actually, so I, I mean, I'll so, just, I, other than the general things that we know, it was, he wrote it in exile 
No, there wasn't. So when he wrote it, when there was no priesthood operating in Jerusalem, there was no temple. I mean, there was remains of a temple, but it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Right. Um, he was looking forward to, and God, you know, this is inspired scripture. I believe it's scripture um, of a future hope. Right. And um, of course, when the second temple was built, it didn't look like what Ezekiel had prophesied. Even Herod's renovations didn't look like it. Several hundred years later, didn't, right. which some argue is the third temple, like really already is like, because you, you have this huge temple complex with all this money uh, put into it in, uh, under King Herod in the, in the first century BC. Right. And it too doesn't look like Ezekiel's temple. You'd think at some point where there are people saying, wait, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we got to do it. Like, so, so, which then we're left to like, okay, hmm. There's nothing in, in history that matches a material, like uh, coming or, or uh, manifestation of this vision yet. And so I'm, I'm, I'm okay saying this is a picture of what's to come. So, so, okay, now let's stop real quick and, you talked about gotcha, gotcha verses, and, and and I have a couple of those that I usually go to when when talking about this conversation. Once again, I'm I'm open for a different view, but some of the places that I normally go are the end, Zechariah 14, where we see the Messiah reigning from the temple, and all of the uh, all of the uh, nations go up to well. We, I believe that this is during the millennium because it seems as though there's still those who will sin against the Messiah, sin against the Messiah, sin against God, and so they go up to celebrate Sukkot, and then it says if Egypt doesn't go up, then there's going to be this plague. Well, we haven't seen this, at least to my understanding, we haven't seen this be, uh, be fulfilled. We also haven't seen. It seems in Ezekiel, it seems in Isaiah that the Messiah actually reigns from the temple. And this is something, once again, that we have not seen yet. So it, now certainly we've seen the Messiah in the temple in the first century, right? He walks within the portico. He's in the temple a lot. So, I mean, certainly the Messiah has been in the temple. But with all of this said, I think that it, according to my understanding, and once again, it is very limited when it comes to these matters, but when it, according to my understanding, this is still to come. And so we see a temple that is going to, some form of a temple. Now, once again, there's been a lot of, debate and a lot of suggestions on what this would be. In fact, I remember one year at, at the Evangelical Theological Society, this is years ago, this is, I don't know, probably 2008, 2009, somebody had said something and I raised my hand and say, and I said, well, what about when the temple's rebuilt? You know, are, you know, and this person looked at me and said, I think you're the only person at, at, at this conference who would take that view, that there's going to be a physical temple. Okay. Um, but that's, that's just how I've, how I've read it. Okay. So with all of that said, there is a figure within the book of Ezekiel and that figure is the prince. Okay. And, and, uh, throughout, uh, certain chapters, the prince seems to function within the temple as the high priest and, and uh, as a Davidic king and as a, Div exactly. Because it says my servant David right. will be prince among Nasi is the word there, a Nasi prince among them. So you're looking for Davidic line, Davidic legitimacy. Um, I, I just wanted, this is a uh, good comment to insert here. Unashamed of Jesus says the new Jerusalem in Re Revelation 21 doesn't reference a temple. Any thoughts? Yeah, my thoughts on that are 
But John, I mean, if we look at John's uh, revelation, it is very much, I think it's very much in line with the rest of the prophets. We see a lot of the same elements within the other prophetic books. And so I, it's just like the Gospels. I think he's looking at it from just a different, a different perspective. But you have to take all of the prophecies together to be able to actually see the whole picture. And so I would simply say I don't think that that discounts the notion of a temple. Okay, so I want to go back to the uh, the notion of the see the the prince. So I had said that I believe that the prince is the Messiah, and traditionally those who push against the notion that the prince is the Messiah they point to a very specific. I don't actually have the verse on hand. And I apologize for that. But they they point to the specific verse where the prince offers a um, a sin offering for the people and for himself. And I think it was last week I said, okay, well, the way that this has been dealt with is that the sin offering can also be a uh, purification offering. And so this person says, can you explain why you say that the sin sacrifice might refer instead to a pur- purification offering? Which passage are we talking about? Yeah, so the term for sin offering in Leviticus 4 also can mean purification offering. Uh, that's how it can be translated. And we see this, uh, well, throughout the Torah in that a, uh, well, I'll go to Second Chronicles and then I'll let Rob speak because he's much more of a language guy than I am. But Second Chronicles 29.21 says, and they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a, here's the word, sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. For the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. So did the sanctuary sin? The kingdom may have sin- sinned as a whole. Judah may have sinned as a whole. But did the sanctuary sin? Second Chronicles 29, 21, once again, uh, for Brandon in the chat room. Um, so the, the answer is no, the sanctuary can't sin. And so, um, it is then believed that this is actually a purification offering. This would actually make sense because when the temple is rebuilt, if, and when the temple is rebuilt and the Messiah comes to reign from it, it would make sense that if nothing has been ritually clean, this is one of the reasons that I don't think the temple will be rebuilt until the Messiah comes, but if nothing is ritually clean and he comes into that temple, then he would need to purify all the things ritually. And he would do this through a purification offering. Rob? I think the verse you're looking at, Caleb, is uh, Ezekiel 45. Sounds right. Starting with 21. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall have the Passover, feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day, the prince shall provide for himself and for all the people a bull for a what's called a, a, a chatat, par chatat. And I, I like your thought on that. I don't think this disqualifies, this would not be, if we were going to try to disprove identity of Yeshua, this would not be the place to do it. I mean, and, and an example would be Yeshua's baptism. Right. What, what is John, John the Baptist, who is a bona fide son of Aaron? I mean, he's a, he is a pure line. He's the guy priest just like his father Zechariah was right serving in the temple says why do you want me to baptize you I should you should be baptizing I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you and Yeshua says 
let it be to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so. So the question is, there's an example of Yeshua undergoing something with collective group, not because he personally needs it. And this this is true independent of whether we translate it sin offering or pure, uh, or a purification offering, right. in my view. It is because he represents his people. Right. Well, I mean, why did he have to suffer and die? Yeshua didn't suffer and die for his own sin. The internet he, is going to... But, ex- he, exper- but he, he experienced the death of, as if he were identified with, with sin. For the sake of identity with his people. Yeshua could have lived forever. Like, like in terms of theoretical Torah, Yeshua had no... There was no, no reason for Yeshua to ever die, ever. But he would have been alone. Right, he 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 took on, right. and by uniting his with his people, he took their sin and joined, became one with them, and suffered on behalf of of them. And so, for that reason alone, I I don't think this verse disqualifies Yeshua from being the prince. Our inbox is going to blow up with the notion that Yeshua could actually offer a sin sacrifice. <sighs> Okay, so um, I don't. I'm. I'm not really sure what the question is here, but I okay. will answer it nonetheless. How do you interpret Jesus when he references himself as the temple in John two? Jesus answered and said to them, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." But he was speaking of the temple of his body. John two twenty one. Yeah, I believe he was speaking about his body. I, I must. I have to be missing the question there, but I don't understand. So. I I understand that as him referencing his body and the death and resurrection on the cross. So I I but but I'm I'm assuming that there is a larger question there. Okay, let's keep going here. So I hope that that answers the question for the person who asked it, the patent patrol, <coughs> patent patrol. Pa- pa- anyway, uh, Robert says, how does he spell it? The patent. Yeah. P e d a n t. Oh. Pedant. Pedant. Okay. So that has to do with teaching, probably, education. Uh, and Carl, oh, of course, Carl Mangus, the man, the myth, the legend. Hey, Carl. In the chat room today, taking time out of his busy schedule of having 100 children and, and, and working That's full time. That's a baritone voice right there. Yeah, yeah. Carl. And he plays and he plays a mean bass. He slaps it. He's slapping a bass. He's slapping a bass, man. <laughs> we I, I've gotta get a sound effect. I've gotta get a slap at a bass sound effect. He, okay, so the man, the myth, the legend, Carl Mangus jumps in and says Ezekiel forty six, sixteen through eighteen says the prince has sons. Could Yeshua have children? Yeah, I mean I work there. Yeah, there's a lot that, uh, that that could be said here. I don't think it means physical children. I think it means, but once again, I am not. I would need to look at this more often, like more in depth, um, and and try to understand. You know, that's these. a really interesting. <clears throat> thank you, Carl. I got to find that. There's um, that reminds me of a passage from from Hebrews. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, that's a really good one. Because in, in Hebrews 2, when he's he's citing 
he says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, right? This is, this is from the Psalm 22. And again, I will put my trust in again. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Right. Yes. And Good the picture reference. is... Good reference. This, so thank you, Carl, for that idea. Hebrews 2.14 continues, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Yeah, that's that good. through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So that that imagery of children, we know disciples are called children. Um, yeah, love but is bigger. But again, love. but now, back to Carl's point, though, we would be insisting that this children, uh, a non-genealogical definition. But we have that in the Tanakh, like the, the sons of the prophets, right? The sons of the prophets don't mean, it means they're disciples. Yeah, but, but also also we have this of Yeshua himself, right? Of Jesus himself in Luke 1 and in Matthew, right? He is, he is, Christ is said to come from Joseph, who they they trace the genealogy back. In Matthew, right, right. Well, in Matthew and in and, and reckoned Luke, as, yeah. Luke does it too. Luke does it too in, in Luke 3. At the end of Luke 3, he he goes through the genealogy, but but Luke goes all the way back to Adam, but he does it through the genealogy of Joseph. He doesn't do it through the genealogy of Mary. Why is that? Well, and some people have said, oh, well, see, look, he couldn't be the, the king because he's not of the line of Judah, really, because if if the virgin birth is true, then then Joseph isn't his father. This is not true, though, because whoever, if, if you, and once again, this almost uh, comes into the notion of adoption, right? If you are adopted Abs- into, the, into the clan, then you are part of the clan. You are, you're considered part of that clan. We see this in Ezekiel too, because why the Gentiles actually get land rights once the once the prince rules, even well, though even you, though they're you Gentiles. See it with uh, in our Torah portion coming up on the yearly cycle, we're soon we're going to see where uh, Jacob is reunited with Joseph, and right. he sees his children. He says, "These are my my sons." Right, exactly. They're now my sons. Right. Like, and Joseph, like, he doesn't even consult Joseph. And then Joseph's like, no, you've got the hands wrong. You got, like, yeah, no. no, no, I don't. Yeah, exactly. It's like, so you're right. You're right. This is a, thank you, Carl, for bringing that to our attention. That That's a really important aspect that I think in our culture, we don't think of adoption as, uh, as in the same terms as yeah, we like don't. genealogical. And I think that we, we want to be careful that we don't project that bias um, into the into the biblical world. Yeah, well, and we see that specifically with with Ruth. Well, and we see it with us. It says if right. uh, if you if Paul tells us in Galatians, if you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed. seed. Yeah. Heirs, heirs according, according to, to the promise. promise and it right. doesn't matter if you're a male or a female or right. slave yes. free, right? Exactly. Okay, let's Woo! Uh, Woo! It. We're on fire today. We're on fire. Bird. Okay. <laughs> Robert Samuelson says, Caleb, do I... Oh, under- ben, ben, ben Shmuel. Ben, ben Shmuel. Yeah. Okay. Son of Samuel. Son of Samuel, yeah. Ben, uh, ben, Sim- ben Shmuel. Anyway, okay. Uh, Caleb, <laughs> do I understand you correctly that once the temple is restored, a believer would not be able to enter without following which ritual purity instructions, including sacrifice where necessary? Absolutely. And we And once again, so now let's tie this to the prince in Ezekiel. If we're correct, or if I'm correct, I don't know. I don't know if Rob's taking the same point on this. Um, that the prince actually offers a sacrifice. 
Now, I think it's a purification offering, okay? When he offers the sacrifice for uh, him and and the people, I think it's a purification sacrifice. If if the Messiah is going to do that, if the prince is going to do that in Ezekiel, um, then why wouldn't we expect that it would also apply to us? So, yes, I, I think that yes, that is... Now, I am personally of the opinion that it does not offend the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, it glorifies the sacrifice of Christ to participate in the sacrificial system. And I believe this not only for the millennium, but I believe it also is what the apostles believed. Why? Well, we see within the apostolic scriptures, within especially, and we can focus in on this again, but especially within like Acts 21, Paul is said, James sends Paul to the temple to prove that he is not against the temple and uh, against the law and circumcision. He, he goes and is part of the sacrificial system. Why didn't Paul say, no, that offends the sacrifice that Christ made? Because Paul does not see a, a problem with the sacrificial system when put up against the sacrifice of Christ. What he sees, in my opinion, what Paul is seeing is the sacrifices that we do now point to the covenant fulfillment in the new covenant of the Messiah's death on the cross and his work in the heavenly temple. It does it doesn't push against it. It glorifies it because we know that the <clears throat> that the um, sacrifices done here on earth are just a picture of that true sacrifice. So I that's one of the I, I think that the sacrificial system in total will be reinstituted, but from a person hang on just a second. But from a perspective of those who find some problem, you know, I've been told by family members, by the way, um, I've been told that uh, that keeping the law, not just the sacrificial system, but keeping the law, that is keeping the Sabbath, keeping the kosher laws spits on the cross. I've been told that verbatim. Um, And so the notion that we would do sacrifices again, I think there is a majority within Christianity today who believe that that would definitely spit on the on the sacrifice of, of Christ. Now I understand why people think that, but I but I disagree with that take on it. I think that the sacrificial system and I think we see this from the apostles that the sacrificial system actually glorifies the work that Christ did on the cross. It points to it, it shows it, it lifts it up, it explains it and it glorifies what he has done. So I don't see that as a problem. Uh, this, uh, I want to stop and, and let Rob jump in. Do you have anything to say about that? Just on the note of there's a lot I don't I don't understand all all these different uh, tie-ins, you know, because there's a lot of different directions we could go. And again, so I want to qualify uh, my comments as coming from someone that doesn't. I haven't immersed myself in in Ezekiel, you know, so. Sure. But in terms of this purification versus sin offering, there is a justification in the Hebrew for for it. Um, in terms of because of the verb uh, can be rendered, it can mean to sin in the what we call the call form. Right. But in the in the PL stem, it means to cleanse from sin. And so, it even though it's the same root chet at Aleph, that it, it can have different uh, different meanings. And so uh, that noun, chatat, can be taken to be understood in terms of purification. But 
purification from sin seems to be the what the what is implied because it is from that same root. But um, I think anyway, it's, I the, wanted, the, the video the video froze for some people, <clears throat> and so they had to refresh, and so they've missed like the last minute, and so now they come back, and all of a sudden you're talking once again about the thing that we started with, oh, which is oh, oh. okay. Well, okay. So hang on just a sec. It, Somebody said, "Can you restate what you said about the sacrifices again in the temple?" I'm going to just I'm just ahead. I'm just going to summarize this. My point is is that the apostles didn't think that it offended the uh, uh, the cross to go and sacrifice. And I personally, although the majority of Christendom says that it would spit on the grave of or on the cross of Christ to uh, do sacrifices again, I personally don't find that. What I think is that it glorifies. It points to and it glorifies the actual work that was done on the cross because it explains it and it, uh, it shows us the need for uh, the death of Christ. So I actually think that the sacrificial system glorifies the cross. It doesn't diminish the cross. That's what I said. Okay, um, let's finish out this comment. One, one last point, if I may. It's just on the sin offering. There's, And again, this is something I have not totally do, uh, dived into. But one thing that would need to, to differentiate is sins of the individual that require repentance over against, I think we touched upon this last week, over against... Uh, sin or uh, sin offerings, if we want to call it, or purification offerings that are ob- obligatory, right? Without without reference to the status of any individual uh, person in terms of their sin and need for repentance. Okay, and so- those are the things that are commanded on the holidays. It doesn't like like in the situation with Ezekiel forty five. We can see parallels in the Torah where certain holidays have mandatory. Right. Uh, burnt offerings, mandatory uh, grain offerings, right? With their libations, right? And, and, and etc. And mandatory sin offering. Um, and there's no repentance commanded in those situations. It's this is what you're going to do for the feast day. So there is a nuance there that we want to make sure we don't um, muddle. So um, Unashamed of Jesus comes in with a great question, and this actually brings us back into a, a pre-mill uh, understand my pre-mill understanding. Um, so Unashamed of Jesus says, are you saying we will still sin in glorified bodies? I'm pre-mill, which means that I believe that the Messiah will come again before the millennium reign. So he will return, and I believe he doesn't, I, re, I believe that the Messiah returns from the prophetic writings, it seems to me that the Messiah returns when Israel turns to Christ. When they finally accept Christ and and call out to him, the Messiah, as a, as a nation, not just a one or two individuals, but as a nation. And when they do that, the Messiah comes back. And but that it, will not be a work of the flesh. No, absolutely That's not. It's not like the, the Chabadniks yeah. who are trying to right. get everybody to wrap to fill in. You're or, absolutely right. Yeah. So, so, but when, that's their rationale. Yeah, of course, the rationale of the Orthodox is is oh, you know, we just need to get all Jews to keep keep one Shabbat or keep the Torah together. So, and that's what there's groups like the First Fruits of Zion that argue. Oh, this shows that the Torah is not for, they use that yeah. as leverage. Say, this shows you that the Torah is not for Gentiles. Because if all the Gentiles in the world kept the Torah perfectly, the Messiah would not come. Only when the only when all Israel keeps the Torah perfectly will the Messiah come. Yeah, and, 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 like, and, okay. and ultimately this brings up the question, who is Israel? Anyway, let's not get onto that right now. 
to answer the question. So, so but there will be a, that will be a work of the spirit of right. of, of like a, a giant. What do you want to call it? The great uh, like a great, awakening, uh, awakening <laughs> part or a, two. Yeah, it's a it's a, I mean that's going to be a majestic work of the spirit. Okay, so when that happens, the Messiah comes back. He slaughters right double edged sword from his mouth. Revelation right comes and he slaughters the enemies of Israel and fights for them. Okay. Then what happens? In my opinion, in the way that I've read the scriptures, and once again, I'm open for other opinions on this and other interpretations, but the way that I've read this is that then he comes and uh, the he enters in the millennium reign. And I believe that the millennium reign is what we see in Zechariah 14 when uh, Egypt may not come up to celebrate Sukkot. Well, how is it that they're not going to do that? Because I believe that there is still sin and there is still death and uh, I and and life being born. In other words, the cycle of life continues for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, from my understanding, and once again, I could be wrong, but the way that I understand this is that at the end of the thousand years, um, there are those who rise up, uh, including the beast and whatnot. They rise up against the Messiah, the messianic figure uh, who is Christ, and he overthrows them. And then judgment comes. And that's when the new heavens and new earth uh, and resurrected, you know, new bodies come uh, and so on and so forth. And so during that millennium reign, to answer the question posed by unashamed of Jesus, I believe that there will be sin and I believe that there will be death. Once that time period is over, once the millennium reign is over, I believe that the, that there will be new bodies, uh, new heaven, new earth, and there will no longer be sin in the world. That's I how during, I've understood it. And, and, you know, I'm okay with that. I, again, I, there's just a lot I don't know. So I, I and I've seen so, I've seen it always go wrong with people right. trying to right. pre predict stuff. So I'm like, I'm a little bit hesitant, but I think when with Yeshua on the I'm not trying to throne, predict, by the way. No, I'm I get, not I understand. Anything. With Yeshua on the throne, that means Torah is going forth from Jerusalem, right? From Zion. Right. And it's pure true Torah. And, and he's going to have such a mass of followers that are all unified in the Ruach that, that, that the knowledge of the Torah will be shining like super strong light. That doesn't mean everybody is sin free at that point, right? But true Torah there there's, it's, we're not going to see like a bunch of Jewish sectarianism going right. on like there is today or like there was in the first century like like you know the sadducees they won't have anywhere to stand right that they, they will either be it's going to be light and day or, for, or light and yeah, dark yeah for like, or yeah. against and yeah. actually there's a follow-up question and it's a real quick one um so do you believe the third temple will be rebuilt in the millennium ring yes and this is when i think that there is this is when the sacrificial system in my opinion this is the sacrificial system that we're seeing within the prophets Zechariah, Ezekiel, this is when the temple is a working temple with the prince as the high priest. And the clarification of all these things. What is it? What is this significance? What does this mean? All the questions we'd love to ask, you know. New new heaven and new earth, in my opinion, once the millennium reign is, is over, new heaven and new earth means that we are put into new bodies and <clears throat> the temple is is uh is everywhere. No more death. Right? Yeah, there's no, no more, more death. God dwells with his people as in the garden before. Okay, um, let's keep going. So I just want to finish up this uh, this question by Robert because he, he totally shifts gear 
gears here and he asks a totally different um, question and that's fine. I just, but it's a quick one. I want to answer this real quick. He says, also, does eating unclean food per Leviticus 11 make one unclean? If so, have I have not found any instructions on how one would become clean following consumption of unclean food. Thanks to you and Rob for your insights. I think that, uh, yeah, the unclean food, <clears throat> the unclean food uh, laws are really interesting because there is no stipulations. There's no punishment or anything for them. The punishment is a rift between you and the Almighty. So I don't, if, if I remember correctly, Leviticus 11 does not specify any kind of uncleanness for eating unkosher food, simply that... Uh, you, it just says it's an abomination. Yeah, exactly. To the Lord. Um, the We do have in the Torah where it says if, whether it, uh, whether an Israelite or a native or a, a, the stranger dwelling with them eats a, a nevelah, which is a, um, a nevelah is a carcass that was... Um, maybe torn, you know, that died because it was a uh, prey of a predator and its carcass is there. And it says they will have to, they will be unclean till evening. They will have to wash. And it's, it's the same. It doesn't matter if you were a native uh, Israelite or you are, were a, a ger, Ezra or a ger are the two terms there. You have to, you're, you're you've uh, contracted impurity that is washed off um, it through immersion and then the, and then sundown. Yeah, so I don't, I don't have the specific passage in front of me, but Lee, Lee, you've you've found a chink in my armor. Lee says, "Now I'm confused. Is it being said that people will raise from the dead, then sin, then get glorified bodies at the end of the millennium?" I am not quite sure how the resurrection of of the saints happens, and I'm not sure how that fits in. To be completely honest with you, I, I, I would say that the the saints aren't don't sin. I think that there will still be sin in the world during that time, but yeah, one, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be among. So, I I should say this. I wanted to say this a couple of times, and again, I, this I is keep speculation. Yeah, we're speculating part, so. at this point. The but the uh, a lot of my. So if you want a really good uh, understanding of pre-mill, post-mill, and ah-mill theology, uh, R.C. Sproul did a great little video. It's not long. It's not super in-depth at all, but it just gives you an overview. For, for those of you who are confused on the differences between those three uh, soteriological, or not soteriological, I'm sorry, um, uh, eschatological views, then you can go and watch that video. It's really good. Um, okay, so... I want to go back now to Ezekiel. It, all of that to say, um, Lee, I don't know, brother. And it's a great question, and it's something that I need to study more. I'm just that's not where my headspace is currently. So maybe in a in a year or two. Juan asks this, and we're back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, and we're not actually going to cover Ezekiel in this, um, but he says something that's very interesting, and I think it actually shows. And I don't know if he meant this or not. But, it, but I believe that this actually shows a common understanding of the temple for mainstream Christianity. And when I say mean, maybe that word shouldn't be used for the majority of Christianity or a large percentage of the Christian church today. Let's just say that. Uh, he says, concerning Ezekiel 45, 16 through 46, 18, I have thought extensively about Ezekiel's temple, the prince and his children, and the offering of animal sacrifices for the atonement of sin during the time of that temple. 
I personally find, now this is where it gets interesting, I personally find Hebrews and its insistence that the blood of animals <clears throat> is no longer required to make atonement, as well as the following verses for Ezekiel helpful in placing Ezekiel's temple within this historical context. He goes on, and there's about there's a good-sized paragraph after this, and he goes on to link Hebrews 10.12 and 10.18 and 10.10, with Ezekiel 43, 10 through 11. Okay, with all of that said, I don't think, let's just go back to the comment. He says, I personally find that Hebrews and it's insistent that the blood of animals is no longer required to make atonement. Well, the blood, what is Hebrews? That's, that's a mischaracterization. Exactly. What is Hebrews? Hebrews uh, makes it clear that the blood of animals never, never, ma- never makes yeah. atonement for, not for people. Not for Aaron, not for... Eliezer, right? Not for any of the sons of Aaron. They never understood it that way. Right. So if, so now maybe, and I want to give the benefit of the doubt to Juan here, maybe Juan is saying, well, purification in terms of ritual cleanliness, but this is not what Hebrews is talking about. Hebrews is not talking about ritual purity. Hebrews is talking about the fact that we have a high priest who went in one time and, and offered the blood. And the picture of Yom Kippur is inaccurate in that the priests die and that it has to be done every year. But we have a priest who went in and offered it one time. It has nothing to do with ritual purity. And so I have to assume that, and maybe this is a wrong assumption, and so if it is, I apologize to Juan, but we have to assume that Juan is now reading this as the blood of animals is no longer required to make atonement that is atonement for sin. And if that's the case, the blood of bulls and goats, the sacrificial system never made atonement for sin. So yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's that's <coughs> I think uh, I think the staff at Tor Resource would all, I mean, be of one mind there saying, yeah, we don't read Hebrews as saying it was once one way and now another way, rather that the blood of these uh, of the animals, which is poetic for saying, you know, all the, the slaughtering in the under the Levitical priesthood, pointed to something, but didn't affect it specifically. And we know that's true because someone could, God cares about the heart, and we don't need quote, New Testament to learn that. I mean, Isaiah chapter one starts off like, you know, all your offerings are an abomination to me. I mean, they had, they had the temple built by Solomon. They, there wasn't a problem understanding Hebrew. They knew Hebrew. They had priests that were legitimate priests. They were, they, they knew how to slaughter an animal. They knew the procedures. Why is God unhappy then? Right. Because the point is, it's not the blood of these animals that solves the problem. It's the heart. He says, they honor me externally, but their heart is far from me. So uh, we need to be careful to read. And I've, I've talked to people, too, also, that, that even if one doesn't mean it that way, it's, it's still okay for us to address that interpretation. Because I think you probably, too, Caleb, have talked to people who use that verse as a, see, it used to be that way, but Jesus came and did away with that. You see, and and that and that's my point. I, I'm not trying to pick on Juan here, um, and and it, c- it could certainly be that he was referencing more a ritual clean aspect of things. What I but this is a so as I've traveled with my father many times, 
<clears throat> this is a question that he asks many audiences today. How many of you were raised in a church or with the understanding that before Christ came, animal sacrifices uh, dealt with sin, but now Christ came and so we don't have to do animal sacrifices because his sacrifice took care of it? How many of you? And I would say that probably, and well, every place that we go to, it's on average that 60 to 70% of the people raise their hands. So, I mean, so the, the, this theological understanding, whether or not, by the way, whether or not the teachers are teaching this, because I've found that this is a misunderstanding from the, the, from the pew more than it is from the pulpit. In other words... That's a fair point. That's a fair point to make. Yeah. People so, could be making that connection on their own. Yeah. So... Okay, but you know what though? It's it doesn't help when your liturgical year is punctuated by Christmas and Easter, right. and Sunday being the Lord's Day. So when you're when you grow up in that kind of cycle, religious year, that you know it just fits. Oh, we don't any of that stuff doesn't fit this world we're in now, right? Sabbaths, new moons. Lord feast stays. We got an interesting, we got a really interesting conversation happening in the, in the chat room. I want to address it. We've addressed this different times in different ways. Um, so Shlomi Cohen writes, why are you not wearing a yarmulke? And I wrote back, well, why would I, I took it off three, about three years ago. I, I'm not going to put it back on. He says, are you a Jew or not? I said, I'm a Christian. He says, wait, I thought, I thought, I think I'm mistaken. I thought you were a Jew. Well, what do you mean by now we have to define the word Jew? Are you going to let's get pick three rabbis off the street? Yeah, and exactly. Have so, them define it. For so us? if that... if we're talking about an Orthodox Jew, they're going to say I'm not Jewish because my mother's not Jewish. If you're talking about a Reformed Jew, they're going to say, well, uh, yeah, you probably your mother probably needs to be Jewish, but it doesn't really matter. Your dad's Jewish, so we'll accept you. If you're talking about a Messianic Jew, they're going to say it doesn't matter as long as you have some Jewish blood somewhere back in your, in your, uh, in your in your history somewhere, then you're Jewish. And we and if we can find a rabbi somewhere to pay a couple grand to yeah exactly to and give so, you a certificate. And so I would say I am not rabbinically Jewish in that I don't hold to the rabbis. I don't think that the rabbis uh, inform us on the scriptures in most cases, uh, and I think that they should be studied more historically than anything else. Uh, I reject thoroughly modern Judaism and think that it has been a, um, it has been a, a hindrance and has incorporated paganism into it, and therefore I want to distance myself from it. Is your mother Jewish? He asks. No, she's not. So there you go. If you're going to consider that uh, Jewish or not Jewish, then no, I'm not Jewish. Right. So that, that, this is an example of a halakhic Right. Uh, right, a halakhic rule, right, to come and and, and to kind of create an evaluation or check a box for somebody, right. and that and that's that's what the rabbinic halacha does. It creates it's a box, you know, a sheets sheets and sheets full of boxes to check to go so, and, but, and but, assess and make an evaluation. But I stand stand very proud, very proud to be adopted into Israel through the covenants as a Gentile. Who comes from the nations, and is uh, and has uh, accepted the covenant obligations, and has the Messiah cover me. 
So I I have I have no problem saying no, I'm not Jewish. That doesn't bother me at all. I am a I am an I am a covenant member and, and Abraham is my father. So that's totally fine by me. I I think that the the arguments or the questioning of people's ethnicity uh, and and honestly, Judaism has has put forward critical race theory in its modern form that is seeping into the church long before because they care. They think about uh, bloodline superiority, and I don't find that to be helpful in any way, shape, or form. I think that if you believe in bloodline superiority, then you have not read your scriptures very well. So, and that goes for Jew and Gentile. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what blood you are. I don't care what nation you're from. Uh, if you believe that you're better than other people or that you have a better handle on things because of the blood that that pumps through your veins, you need to go read your scriptures again. Okay, um, let's get back to it. We got uh, We got a couple of minutes. How's about this one? Um, do you guys have a discussion on laws for Jews and different ones for Gentiles? This actually uh, plays right into what we were just talking about. I'm going to a congregation and am confu- and it's confusing me. Maybe I can listen to another point of view. Uh, this comes from Jesus. And we will- I thought we talked about this last week. Nope, we did not. Really? This okay. is something that we talked about when we were discussing what we were going to talk about. Oh, okay. That's probably where I heard it then. Okay. So um, we do not, I, I'll speak for myself, but I think uh, Rob is included in this. I do not find the Torah to have different laws for Gentiles than it does for Jews. And I will give you the reasoning behind my understanding for this. It says specifically in the Torah, now we can link this to the Apostolic Scriptures as well. It says specifically in the Torah that if you are going to observe the Passover, and Ultimately, what does that mean? It means to partake in the in the uh, in the festival sacrifice. So the Paschal Lamb is what, or or goat. A lot of people don't realize that. But uh, if you're going to participate in that sacrificial uh, lamb, then you need to be circumcised. Okay. Well, if you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, then what are you supposed to keep? Well, now you're under covenant obligation. And so the covenant obligation is uh, is all of the covenant. It's not, you don't get to pick and choose. If you're circumcised, you're in. Now, Christ tells us, do this in remembrance of me. I, and, and he says, I, I have longed to eat this Passover, this Pascha with you, right? And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, of course, we don't have the Passover lamb physically at our table uh, each Passover, but we do have the lamb of God at our Passover ta- table every uh, every year. And so uh, that's one instance. Also, uh, what does Paul say? Paul says, if you are circumcised, then you are under obligation to the whole Torah, right? Okay. So all of this to say, if you, and let's just walk down the road here. If you're circumcised uh, to celebrate the Passover, then you're going to celebrate what, what you're going to celebrate the first and last Sabbaths. So right there, all of a sudden, you are now celebrating Sabbaths. So just two Sabbaths or all of the Sabbaths? And the answer is all of the Sabbaths. You can't pick and choose. So once you pull on this thread, and and once again, there have been Messianic uh, uh, various ministries within the Messianic world that have tried to say, oh, well, uh, that's just when it says there's to be one law for you and for the gear within your midst. That's just for Passover. 
Okay, well, if it's just for Passover, guess what? It includes circumcision. It includes Sabbath keeping. It includes festival keeping. It inc- includes the kosher laws. includes all of it. it it's all here's one big a, package. Here's a funny way that you could put it. In my view, if we had a local synagogue and Abraham, uh, Moses, and David were the te- Torah teachers, and I was there as a non-Jew, and... I'm there and I, I, I love, you know, God with all my heart, all my soul, and my strength, and I'm all in and they see that there's no, there, I'm not going to be differentiated in their eyes. Right. I'm not going to be told, oh, you go sit, you go sit down there, you know? Right. You go, you know, you can't join us for this other thing over here. Or something like that, you know. It, that's just not. Oh, this it. this conversation. I'm sorry. This and at the same time, if someone came and said, "Oh, you know, I'm a I'm a rabbinically trained expert of of the halacha," you know, that doesn't that's not going to impress Abraham, Moses, or David, in my opinion. So this conversation in the chat room once again, Shlomi asking if I why I don't wear a yarmulke. This has gotten really interesting really quick. So. Shlomi says, okay, I'm tempted to log in, but I'm not going to go. So, uh, David says, Shlomi, you should listen to Tim Hanks commentary on Galatians. He says, no, thanks. And Tanner says, uh, Cohen, are you a Christian? And Cohen writes back and says, yes, but I don't believe I'm above you or anyone else for that matter. So Christina jumps in. She says, Cohen, we are able to be called the people of God through Christ. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. What do you mean by we want to bring our people back? And Shlomi says, we want to bring our people back to Judaism. Okay, I would reject this. I don't yeah, want to. Br- you, don't, you don't even know what Judaism is. Yeah, I, we, I mean, we don't. That's we don't, an invention of man. Judaism yeah. is an invention of man. Right. If you want to bring people to whatever Judaism, you're dealing with a dream that you have defined by your experience of what Judaism is. It's not the religion of the Messiah. Yeah, and the question, and ultimately what Rob is, is hitting on now, what Judaism do you want to bring them back to? Because there's a yeah. whole lot of them. And the notion that that Israel has has returned to God out of the exile, I don't buy it. I think that, 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 that Israel continues to serve the Baals and that modern Judaism is just that. They are serving the Baals. They're not serving God. And we know this because they have rejected the Messiah. So the notion that people should... Uh, all of a sudden come back to an invention, which is predominantly, predominantly a 17th and 18th century invention of, of, uh, of modern people. Uh, it's an invention of, of, of man. To bring them back to that, I, I don't know why we would do that. It makes no sense. You're not actually bringing them back. You're, bring, you're just trans, you know, directing them to... a some different channel. He says, you don't even know what Judaism is typical. Okay. Yeah, it's, it is typical. And the reason why is because you would have to define Judaism and what you're going to here, here, Here's, here's the word for Shlomi. The word Judaism is not in the Talmud and it's not in the Mishnah. Right. Well, why is that? Go, go, go learn Shlomi. Why are you going to look throughout the Mishnah and out the Talmud and the Midrashim? You're not going to find the word Judaism, not in Hebrew not an Aramaic. No, it's a Greek term, Judaismos. You're you're promoting a Greek idea. 
with Udaius Moss. But, but uh, I mean, let's just look at the first question. The fact that he would say, why aren't you wearing a yarmulke? Well, okay, when is a yarmulke even in, like, when does yeah, that, 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 when does that even come into play? We're talking about, much, we're not, we're not talking about anything that was around in Christ's day. We're I talking about something Shlomo, that was Shlomi, so much later. Get some different teachers. <laughs> add to your, add to your bibliography. Yeah. All right. Should we, uh, let's see if we have anything left or if we're, we're out of time. Let's see here. Um, okay. Well, we'll do this one quick. This is from Brandon. He is also in the chat room. I liked your point about Jesus living in Egypt. I hadn't connected those dots. Interesting. I was also thinking if the sacrifices commence once again, would we not need Levitical priests? Can anyone just start being a priest? No. The, and actually, this is actually one of my arguments against well, a lot of different things, but any any uh, facet of Christianity or any other religion that establishes a false priesthood is, in essence, false. Um, okay. And Shlomi asks, Judaism is Greek? Yes. The word Judaism is Greek. Okay. Um, well, real quick. It appears in the Greek translation of, in a verb form, Greek translation of Esther, and it occurs as a noun in, I think, first in first time historically is in Second Maccabees, Eudaismos, and it's juxtaposed with Hellenismos. Right. So, and, and there's a whole, and then Paul uses it as something he was once affiliated with, in Galatians chapter one, you you heard of my time in, it's ento judaismo in the in the Judaism. It's not his. It's it, it's different than being a Pharisee. It's a, it's a, in in Galatians, but later. So what you're imagining when you use the word Judaism is what's what's sold by what's peddled among rabbis today in the marketplace of of religious ideas. So I'd encourage you to to go and and just get. Get some add add some books to your library from some different voices on that one. Okay, so I want to finish this uh, question by Brandon. Can anyone start being a priest? No, it has to be from the line of the Coens. Are there people alive today that are able to trace their genealogy back to no, they come from the Levitical, Levitical priesthood? The answer is yes. There are people who they believe they uh, through DNA they've been able to trace specific lines back to the priesthood, and there are people waiting. Sorry, I, was, I had my I had my mute. They zip themselves up. Remember, like on airplanes and stuff like that, because they believe that they're trying to uh, avoid getting corpse contamination, right? And so, right, the, because they're like, what do we do? You know, there's no pure, there's no actual purity in the world right now. Yeah, if you ever touched your mother, corpse defilement. If you ever touched your siblings, corpse defilement. If you, I mean. If you ever touched anyone, corpse defilement. So again, this is this is one of those Torah contingencies that that leaves its mark on everything in terms of where we are right now with respect to God's holiness as in this world. Right, and actually, Kessler says it best: "Silly, they are born unclean." That's exactly right. You're born unclean. So. Yeah, you can't take exactly. You can't take a, well, even, even Yeshua's mother 
went to the temple and offered the the turtle doves. Right. 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 So I want to give a taste of something I've wanted to get to this. We're going to this is the first question that we're going to answer next uh, next week. Garrett Hill left a comment on one of our communion uh, videos. And so it's in reference to the communion and Passover. This is what and we're not going to answer it today, but I just want to. I want to say it so that we have to talk about it because I've wanted to get to it a bunch okay, of times. Okay, when is, C- is that season nine? Next week is will C- be season nine. I don't know if I'm going to have a new intro or not. I'm going to try. Okay, then we can't we can't call it season nine then. Well, we, we'll see. Let, let's just, we'll let you know. <laughs> because it means now this is the last sign off of season eight. I'm, you know, I'm just thinking that It way. could be. It could be. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Okay, uh, so here's the here's the question from Garrett on a video about communion and Passover. Wouldn't the breaking of bread and pouring of the wine be referring to Arab Shabbat since Passover is a high Sabbath? There is a lot going on in that comment, and I I can't wait, I cannot wait to uh, to talk about it. We also have a bunch of other comments and great things, but not enough. So if you want to, uh, if you want to. Uh, uh, send us things to talk about for our first show in season nine. Go ahead and do so. Seahag at torresource.com. I'm going to bring it up on your screen for you. Seahag at torresource.com. You can also send us a voice voicemail on our comment line. You don't talk to us. You just talk to a voicemail. It is 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. We currently have two voicemails that have been sent in that we have not gotten to yet. And so maybe next week we'll be able to get to those as well. I would uh, ask that you, if you are not subscribed already, please go ahead and subscribe. Hit that bell to get notifications so you never miss one of our videos. It's been fun. It's been real. And uh, I hope that uh, you had fun with us and that maybe, just maybe, you learned something. But ultimately, we hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.